Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we're very happy to welcome another guest from Brooklyn, Simona Dinnerstein. Simona, how are you? Nice to meet you. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. I've known your music since 2007, since your Bach Goldberg Variations record came out. And I just love that record. I, I had long been a harpsichord purist, and it was around that time I started appreciating Bach on the piano. And you helped me navigate that to understand that it doesn't have to be played on a harpsichord anymore. Wow, that's great. Thank you. What I found really interesting at the time is that you self-produced this. And I'm thinking back 2005, 6, 7, the early days of the internet, you had a MySpace page at the time, remember MySpace. What what prompted you to go the self-production route? I didn't really have any other options, actually, because I um, when I made the recording, I didn't have uh, a manager. So I was really just completely a freelance musician in New York. And uh, I decided that I wanted to record the Goldberg Variation uh, because I'd been performing it for a few years, and I felt that I really had something that I wanted to document with it. And um, so I raised the money from three people that had been very encouraging to me over the years and just found this amazing producer, Adam Apeshouse, who's been my producer ever since. And like I just, I just put together all of the elements to make the album, raised the money to cover it, and then once it was ready, um, then started to shop it around to different people. So I think it was really um, like the way a lot of indie rock bands and, you know, people do it then. Now everybody seems to be able to do that model. But back then we didn't have crowdsourced funding. And then two years after I made that master um, telearc commercially released the recording. Yeah, as you say, crowdfunding didn't really exist back then, and that's what made it stand out. Now, pretty much everyone who wants to make an album goes on Kickstarter or whatever the other ones are. We've had a couple of people on here who've done that, and it's an interesting way of getting people involved in a project, because you get people, you know, who maybe give 10 or $20, donate to a project, and they're the people who are going to communicate about it once it comes out. But back in the day, when you're just working with a few patrons, you're still on your own to, to, as you say, shop it around to get people to listen to it. Yes, it was. It was. Um, I, I have to say, it was a very unusual experience, and you know, I, I look back on it and I can't believe that everything came together the way it did. But basically, when Adam started editing the recording, he gave me the aria and the first five variations which we'd finished editing. And that is what I sent to a bunch of people. I sent it to some different people in the music industry, not just um, record companies. Uh, obviously, I, in fact, I couldn't really send it to record companies then because I didn't know anybody. But I sent it to you know, different m- people in the music industry that I had met over the years, um, <clears throat> but who had never really been that interested and not really you know, never wanted to talk to me. And, um, but when they listened to it, uh, then they were interested in talking to me. And 
uh, what was what was the most interesting is that everybody said we want to hear you play this live and uh so i realized i was going to have to do a concert of the goldberg variations in new york where they could all come and uh at that time i really didn't have any money i mean i was basically earning my living from teaching neighborhood children in park slope and uh, my husband um had, well, let's see. He was still he was working at the YMCA as a as a fundraiser back then at our local Y. Now he's a, a teacher, a public school teacher. So we didn't really have any money, and um, and a very crazy thing happened at that moment, at that precise moment when I realized I needed to perform in New York. Uh, a man who I did not know who was uh, an American um, who had relocated to Israel, called me out of the blue. And he said that a friend of his had heard me play the Goldberg Variations in a house concert in Brooklyn, which I had done, where there were literally three people in the audience, and had called him and told him about it. And he was a massive fan of the Goldberg Variations and of Bach, and he somehow had found a little bit of me playing on the internet. And he was just completely, like, wanting to help me. And he said, how can I help you? <laughs> I didn't know who he was or anything like this. And I had to do, like, a little bit of research to find out, like, is he just some crazy guy? And he was crazy. But he have to perform in New York. And I can't, I can't afford to rent a hall. And so he rented Carnegie Recital Hall, the Vile Recital Hall. He even paid for me to buy a gown for the concert. And so he funded that concert. And, um, and that concert uh, was really the turning point because all of those people came to the concert. It was sold out. And I got a really great review in the New York Times. And I got signed by Columbia Artist Management. And... Um, and that led to Telarc doing it. So, I mean, it was really this crazy sort of call from the angels and Israel that did it. <laughs> kind of kind of like a star is born in some ways. It, it's not that uncommon. I don't remember who we were talking to about the fact that some musicians step in because another musician is sick and they do a performance and people all of a sudden notice this wonderful musician that they didn't know. Obviously, this isn't the same, but... Isn't, isn't much of the classical music industry much? No, it's not true. A lot of the classical music industry is based on this sort of luck, isn't it? Oh, I would say that very, very few things are based on this. I think that more often than not, it's, um, there's a very sort of prescribed route. I mean, one of the things about classical music is that they're extremely interested in youth. Yeah, youth like i'm not even talking about 18 i'm talking about like 12 you know um so there's an obsession with prodigies and um and also there's an obsession with competitions yeah and so many many the, the typical sort of route that people are encouraged to pursue is to first of all be a prodigy then um win a competition a major competition and then that launches your career be signed by a major record label, that kind of thing. Um, so when this happened to me, I was in my, let me think, I think I was about 
34, which is really old. Which is really late to break in, yeah. I mean, I already had my son. Like, I was like a, I was like a Park Slope mom, you know, like, this is not, <laughs> this is not the typical um, discovery. And, um, and also, it wasn't, I think the thing that also is unusual is that I kind of, in some ways, I made it happen myself, and that I, you know, I did make this album, I did go out and I decided to record a piece of music that's iconic. Um, and, and not necessarily the best choice for a first recording. You know, you, you're starting with Everest there almost. Right. Yeah. I mean, even my husband was like, what are you doing? Um, but uh, I, I think that what's unusual is how every single thing kind of came together for it. Um and I think the people that, that step in at the last moment and replace, that does happen, but they stand out as being unusual. It also fits that template, that Cinderella uh, magical sort of template that tickles humans' brains. It's like, oh, look, they, they came to the rescue at the end. And so maybe that's why that sticks out a bit more. So it gets more press. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's, not, it's a yeah. great human interest story. It's, it's the red shoes or something. It's well, we were talking before we started recording about the Royal Shakespeare Company, because you've been here a couple years ago. A young actor named Papa Esiodou was playing Edmund in King Lear at the National Theater. He was playing a different role, and he had to step in at the interval to play Edmund for someone who lost his voice, and he just blew everyone away. And they picked him to be the first black Hamlet to perform at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2016. And since then, he's just had a, a wonderful career doing you know, theater and TV. But I guess we hear about it because it's the PR they use to sell the story of that actor or that musician. Yeah. And I actually saw him do the Edmund uh, in Did you? Brooklyn. They brought us to the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Oh, well, that was the 2018 one, the RSC's version. Oh, okay, yes. Because he initially, so he stepped in as Edmund at the National Theater back in 2015, I think. So then he did the Hamlet in 2016, then in 2018 he did King Lear. So that was with um, Tony Scher and Papa Esiodou and... You know, we're talking about the arts while you're thinking about that, but this happens in sports all the time. Yes. You know, yeah. some, some quarterback will break his leg, and the second string guy's got to run, and it turns out he's amazing. It's, uh, it's just that fairy tale story. Well, that people also, like. uh, of course, there's that great film, Rosemary's Baby. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They, the devil actually blinds the, the lead. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're veering off to an interesting area here. <laughs> I told you we were eclectic. Ba back to your latest record. I, I think this is your 11th record. One of my favorite pieces of music is Schubert's last piano sonata, the D960. And your record is called The Character of Quiet, and you pair this with three etudes by Philip Glass, which I thought was quite a bold pairing, Glass and Schubert. And so Doug, Doug's not the classical music guy, but he said earlier that he was listening to it. Well, I was listening to it earlier, and what I liked about it is that everything seemed to marry together as an album listening experience. It's like you just, it's not the individual pieces, the, the whole album is an experience. And I think I like it when an album is an experience like that, and I can sit back and just let the whole thing sort of stew. And it really felt, now, I don't know a lot about Schubert, as Kirk says, and I don't know a lot about Philip Glass, but I really enjoyed the juxtapositions and the, and the uh, 
the, the themes that seem to pop up in both. But again, the thing I liked most about it was that it was an, ex a, an entire listening experience in my own home. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I definitely was thinking of it as an album. Yeah. You know, as, as, as you say, an, an, uh, an album experience. Um, it, it came, that pairing came from a recital program that I did. Um, I started doing it a few years ago where I put together a program where I would go back and forth between Glass and Schubert without pausing between the pieces so that <laughs> there's no audience applause. Like it just would go like, so the first. And, and, and no indication that they should applaud. There was, it's just, you no. just zoomed right into it. Actually, I would, I would finish start the next piece, but nobody ever applauded because it was so clear that, that, they were joined in some way. And also yeah. on the printed program, I really enjoyed this. It took a lot of convincing to the concert promoters because classical concert promoters are very conservative. But I, I convinced them to just list the names of the pieces without listing the composers. And, uh, and so people did not know for sure if it was Glass or Schubert unless they knew the music inside out. And what was interesting was that even like very seasoned people said that at a certain point they started not knowing who had composed which one. And, um, and a very funny thing happened recently after I made the album, <clears throat> I gave it to Philip Glass and, um, it's recorded for orange mountain music, which is his label. And, and Richard Guerin, who's the guy who runs Orange Mountain Music, um, said he was having a conversation with Philip Glass about my recording. And Philip said that he was listening to it. And at a certain point, he said he thought, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> and then It's true that there are, I, I'm not that much of a musician, but I think that the way there are certain, uh, a certain usage of intervals in the glass pieces and parts of the Schubert Sonata that have echoes. Is that correct? Yes. I think what, one of the things that they do is that they'll take a chord um, and they will just kind of flip the chord. So they, they'll just... It'll be the same harmony, but they just have a different order of the notes, you know. And then if they want to transition to another harmony, they will just change one note within that chord. So that it kind of almost like there's like this subtle shifting from one harmony to another. They both use that technique. And I think that's one of the things that we kind of unconsciously perceive as listeners. I definitely noticed that with that chord flip where there's like a subtle dissonance and then boom, it moves to the next thing. Yes. And, um, and they both had that. Uh, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm catching on to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this, this jazz be pretty good. <laughs> on your Instagram feed, you have a picture of the first time that you were playing for Philip Glass. How long ago was that? Um, I think that that was in 2016. It was either 2016 or 2017 that I did that. And it was... No pressure? <laughs> <laughs> it was only his etudes on the piano that he composed it on. But yeah. uh, actually, I met him the first time 
he invited me over to meet him and have breakfast with him, with him and Richard. And it was um, very exciting because I, you know, I felt really honored to go over there. And, um, and we actually had a, a we, we ate in his garden. And while we were talking just about many different things, um, we discussed the possibility of, of him writing something for me. And then after that, I thought about it, and I thought it'd be really amazing if he could write a piano concerto for me for piano and string orchestra, which would be paired with a Bach concerto. And he really liked that idea. So that's what he wound up doing. But before he started composing that is when I went over there and when that photograph is from, and I played for him the Schubert Glass program. Uh, because that's what I was about to be performing. And I think that him hearing me play that in his room really influenced his writing of the piano concerto, because there is something about that piano concerto that, that definitely relates to Schubert, too. So um, it's interesting. It doesn't just relate to Bach. It's interesting to have that connection with a living composer and such a great composer, to have that opportunity to, to work, to inspire him, and he inspires you. It's a, it is a rare occasion. Uh, what I want to talk about, though, in part is the lockdown. So like everyone else in this crazy world, you've been locked down for months, and you recorded this in your living room. Uh, I read an interview with you. You started out by just not playing for a couple of months. Is that what happened? Yeah, well, um, I, I had my last concert in March right before the lockdown, and in fact, it, that concert had to be done for an empty hall. It was live streamed from Columbia's Miller Theater. And then after that, of course, I went into lockdown. And, and as you know, New York City was really hard hit in the beginning. Yeah. It was a very upsetting experience to be around all of that. And, you know, just hearing the sirens and reading the news and um, I I felt like, you know, I should be taking advantage of the fact that I'm not traveling and playing concerts and I should do all the projects that I, that I have been planning on doing. Like, I should learn all this repertoire that I wanted to do and I tried to do it. I started many different projects and I just couldn't do it. Like I, I felt, um, first of all, my focus was completely gone. I've never been so unfocused. I mean, I'm a pretty focused person and I just, I would play and then I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate. And then every piece of music that I started to work on just seemed dissonant with how I was feeling. Uh, I remember I, I started learning Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, which I had been saving to learn because I love it so much. And it's so heavenly and uplifting. And I just couldn't go there with that music, you know. And then I thought, okay, I'll learn Brahms' second piano concerto, which is another piece I've been saving to learn. And that was just so kind of anguished that I couldn't do that either, you know. And um, so it wasn't that I totally didn't touch the piano but I mean I was at the most playing for an hour a day and then and then I had whole periods of time when I just wasn't playing at all I remember I I had periods of time when I just 
really couldn't get up. Like I was just in bed. I mean, it was just, it was really pretty hard. I mean, I, and I wasn't sick. Like I feel funny to, there are so many people that have had serious, serious problems with this. I didn't have that. I just felt really, you know, psychically burdened by the whole experience. Um, and, and I finally just really wasn't doing anything. You know, I just was kind of coming to a standstill. And, um, and that was in about May. And so I had a conversation with Adam Abe's house, who is my producer, but also is a friend. And uh, I was talking to him and telling him about <clears throat> how I was feeling. Also, my whole concerns about not performing and, you know, I mean, suddenly to not have that is, it's, it's a big thing to not perform anymore. And he said to me, you know, you've always wanted to record on your piano. I can come to your house and we can record. I think this would be great. And, um, and that's how it all kind of came together. And I, I felt, um, when I thought about what to record, um, I thought of the Schubert glass because though I hadn't performed that program in about a year, the music <clears throat> really, really was how I was feeling at that time. Like it just, it perfectly encapsulated this kind of solitary, um, wintry, uh, feeling it's full of memory it has a kind of feeling of um loss in it um, nostalgia and melancholy but also with a bit of positivity toward the future yeah yeah it has it's it's complex it's not one thing or another um but but there's a kind of the emotion in it is slightly removed like it's very emotional but it's not like brahms it's not like it's right with its heart out there in that same kind of way um it's very sincere music um and so i thought well that's what i'll do but i really i hadn't practiced so much so i, I mean i had to practice i think i've never done a recording like this i've prepared for like two weeks before the recording and <laughs> well sometimes spontaneity can be positive it's, it's not that you didn't know the music it's just that you needed to refresh it and I guess it's the kind of situation where you can just sit down and focus. How long did it take to record the, the whole album? We recorded it in two nights. Adam came over, because I'm in Brooklyn, we recorded at the end of June. Do you have to record at night because of the noise of cars? Cars. Actually, we were supposed to record it in the beginning of June, and then all the protests started. Yeah. There was the curfew, and Adam lives in Westchester, so he couldn't drive here. Also, we could hear helicopters during the protests. So that at night, it, that was when they were happening. So that wouldn't work. Um, so we started recording at about like, I don't know, like 8.30 at night and recorded until about one in the morning. Um, and we did that for two nights. And uh, that, which, which is actually pretty fast for me to record an album. That sounds about right, though, because... Well, I'm wondering too. You, you know, this is the first time you recorded at your home. You said, and um, I know it's in the middle of lockdown, but that must have been a good feeling, wasn't it? Didn't you feel safe and and more casual and more comfortable at home recording and and working on a project 
rather than, you know, not working on a project? I mean, did, did working at home change that? You know, it's funny because Adam was saying, oh, you're going to feel good being at home. I was actually very worried. I, I almost canceled the recording like a week beforehand because my piano, I have a special piano room in my house, which is just for my piano. Um, and it's where I do all my work, you know, like it's where I'm super self-critical. I, you know, this is where I figure things out. May I ask, do you ever record yourself yeah. while you're working on projects? Is, is recording something that you're comfortable with anyway? I mean, I record on my iPhone. Um, yeah. It's it's only for, you know, for me to review so sure. that I know um, uh, I was concerned because when I record, I normally, all of my albums I've recorded in concert halls. And I'm very responsive to the acoustic of the room I'm inspired by hearing the piano sound in a large room. And also I feel free in a concert hall because it's like that's when I'm performing, I'm, I'm trying to let go of the self-criticism. It's about being in the moment and put some, putting something out there. And I just felt, how am I going to find that in my room? You know, like I, I was really concerned that I was going to play something and then think, oh, no, that wasn't good. I need to do it again. You know. But what can be more authentic than playing Schubert in a salon? I was just going to say, it, we want to hear that on a recording. We want to hear you in your room. <laughs> That's what we want to hear. <laughs> I think that, that, well, that was another reason why Schubert and Glass felt so appropriate, because Schubert would have been played in a room. Glass, those etudes are for studying, you know, so again, something for the room. Um, and I do feel like what happened was that, and Adam was right about this, that it did come sort of pouring out of me once he was here. You know, he was downstairs in the kitchen, yeah. and I was in my piano room, and we kept it very dark, which is how I like to practice with it very dark. And So you were playing alone, you weren't playing for someone else in the room? No, nobody was in the room, and um, it was kind of hot, too. <laughs> Because, you know, we couldn't have fun on or anything. And I had to tell, we have, um, we had tenants upstairs and I had to tell them that they had to be quiet. They had a little kid. <laughs> they put her to bed early and they, they weren't allowed to flush the toilet because we couldn't. <laughs> um, and uh, my son was in the other room and my, my husband was down in the kitchen and, and the piano technician was here too. So he was. Sure. And, um, but I decided that I wasn't going to leave the room. I wasn't going to listen to playbacks. Usually I listen to playbacks um, because I knew that if I did that, I would get out of my headspace that I was in. And um, so I did feel like it felt very, very um, private. It felt more private than any other recording I've done. You know, I just felt like I was just in my own world, in my room. And interestingly, the only other recording that I really connect this one with is the Goldberg Variations. Because I remember when I did that recording, which was at the American Academy of Arts and Letters in Manhattan, which is an incredibly beautiful neoclassical hall, concert hall. 
I remember it, we had it fairly dark in there and it was my first experience really recording a solo album and I was alone in that hall and I remember feeling that I was able to get in touch with something in myself in terms of the music that I hadn't been able to reach before. Like I had felt good about other times I played, but, but this that recording, those sessions, I felt like I was actually marrying what I heard in my head with what was coming out on the piano. Like they were connecting. And I felt like that was happening in this recording. Like when I was in the room, I felt like I was just able to connect with how I heard the music. Well, don't you also have a certain amount of freedom that you, you haven't had to book a hall for a certain amount of time, and you know you've got to be finished by a certain amount of time. You're in your own home, and you've got more flexibility, and you know, uh, you knew that if you needed a third night to record, you'd be able to do that, right? Yeah, but you also have to think about whether the people upstairs are going to flush their <laughs> toilets or not. So, I mean, there's a whole different set of stresses. Well, actually, we really only have the two nights, so I knew I had to get it done in the two nights. And, uh, and I also felt like... I was slightly, I was kind of putting my family at risk a little bit too, because we had, we had never had anybody come into our house before then. And, uh, the piano technician, he was coming in like starting the week before to work on the piano. And, um, you know, we were all, it was a weird, it was a weird time to be bringing people into your house, no matter how well you knew them. I mean, I still, my parents haven't, hadn't been in my house you know it was I, I didn't feel I don't know if if comfortable and safe is how I would regard how I mm. felt at that time but and I was a little also I felt a little self-conscious that my husband and son were there because they had never been within earshot when I'd done a recording before they may hear you in concert, or they may hear the finished recordings, but when you're in that bit that you may have to stop and start over, then all of a sudden it's not as polished, and you just don't want them to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just that, because of course they've heard me practice forever, you know. Yeah, but practice is practice, it's different. Yeah, I don't, I think that there's something about performing or recording that is very exposed, and... Um, maybe recording in a way the most so because it, as I said, you do do things again and again it's 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 a process which is a very uh vulnerable process and uh i felt a little uncomfortable about them hearing that but at the same time i feel like in the end i felt that they were being so supportive of the whole the whole thing and and in fact, um, my son took the photographs for the album, and he made the little promo videos of me playing, which was really fun to do with him. Uh, so I felt like they were they were the most involved they'd ever been for any album. So just, I, I do want to talk about the music. I said earlier, the, the D960 Schubert Sonata is one of my favorite pieces of music. I have about a dozen recordings. Yours is by far the longest, by several minutes. 22 minutes, 35 seconds for the first movement. There's something about that slow tempo that you take there that just makes that transcendent. 
the, those 22 and a half minutes are just some of the most beautiful notes that I've heard in a very long time. And there's also something, I, I've said this before on the show when we've talked about classical music, I love Bach because he's just enormous and I love Beethoven, but there's something about Schubert that just talks to my soul in a different way. And I was just blown away when I heard this recording. I, why is the slow tempo a reflection of the way you always play it? Or is it more a reflection of this specific time? Uh, I didn't realize I was playing it so slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can just pause a second. I'm going to go to my iTunes library and Schubert D960, and I'll tell you. The the longest I have is Kempf at 2112, Piresh 2042. So you're a couple of minutes longer than any of the others. Now, it's worth pointing out, I really love Alfred Brendel, and I really don't understand why he refuses to play the repeats for that. And that's why his version of that movement is so short. When was that recording made? A Brendel. Yeah, when was... One, one was the 70s, one was the 80s, I think. I think one was the Phillips in the 70s, and the second one was the digital one he did in the 80s. They're all around 14, 15 minutes. And he's always said that he doesn't think that the repeat should be played in that movement. Oh. I mean, I was going to say that if it was during the LP time, then it would have right. been... Didn't fit. Yeah, but Kempf plays it at 21 minutes, so it's a side. Yeah, I don't know. I feel that that repeat is essential. And I remember when I played it for Philip Glass, he was so happy that I did the repeat. <laughs> because he, you know, of course, he thinks of repeats as being like not a repeat. I mean, a repeat is yeah. uh, is a part of the architecture, you know. And I think that that's what happens in this sonata that ref- the first movement has this enormous repeat. So, and you actually hear that opening theme three times. So you hear it the first time, then you hear it in the repeat, and then you hear it in the recapitulation when it comes back again. And I love how it changes from the first time to the third time. Like I, I think that if you miss that repeat, then it's it kind of it gets to the recapitulation too soon. You can't. It upsets the balance to me of that movement. I I don't understand any artist saying, I'm not playing the repeat that the composer wrote in his score. He wrote it. it. It's it's in the book. Read it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, I feel like it's, I respect people having different opinions about what's written down. I mean, sometimes I, I change stuff that I see because it makes more sense I just happen to think that this repeat makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't. I, th- I don't always think every single repeat by every composer needs to be done. But um, but here, to me, it 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 really makes sense because it's a it's. It's already a big movement, and you need that repeat to just emphasize all of the emotion in that movement. If you jump into the next movement too quickly, which is a lot more. Uh, molto modera- no, sorry, andante whatever. Sorry, I can't read on my laptop there. But it's a lot faster, it's a lot more sprightly, and it, and it just it would go too quickly for me. Yeah, I think that the repeat of the first movement makes it a very, um, it makes it asymmetrical in a really big way. And I, I think that that's important. Well, it, it makes it the first movement is about as long as the other three movements. Yes, that's true. In your performance, <laughs> which in the LP days would have been perfect. You've got the first one on one side, right. and then you go take a break and get tea or coffee, whatever, and then you flip it over and play the rest. Right, right. 
Yeah, yeah. I just think it's wonderful. I thank you for having recorded this and released it. Schubert, for me, is the thing that can cure a lot. It's kind of like Henry James for me. I've been reading Henry James's short stories again this summer in lockdown, and there's something about the, the two of them, I think they have the same kind of feelings, that they can go to places and, and they're not they're not too self-important and they're talking to you directly and you don't have to overanalyze it and it's not that there's something very human about that sort of work yeah it's interesting that you talk about henry james i think that um his writing is in many ways very simplified in the way that schubert is and that it's like it's there's not too much um there's not any excess and while the characters are very vivid and, and it's very, um, it, the writing is incredibly personal, you also have a sense that the writer is a bit distant from the whole story. And uh, I think that Schubert's the same thing. Like, I mean, he was somebody who worked with poetry all the time because he wrote so, much, so many songs. And so I, th- I have the feeling that he was always thinking of music as a narrative, um, and even his instrumental music, you know, you have this feeling of narrative in it. And you, you feel the personality of the music very vividly. But there's also this craft. There's a composer as the craftsman who's, who's looking over the whole thing and, and almost giving you a map of what you're seeing. Uh, and the same thing is true with the Henry James stories is that they... They're so beautifully crafted, and you're aware of that while you're reading it at the same time as being sucked into the story and the characters themselves. Okay, well, you'll have to join us on our new podcast, The Next Chapter. (laughs) 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 We we don't often discuss literature, but I do find that in certain times there are composers and, and authors that do fit together really well like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Simona Dinerstein, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. Delightful. Um, I, I look forward to meeting you when you come to the Royal Shakespeare Company yes. in, in, in the after, when everything is resolved. Yes, thank you. It was great talking with you both. Okay, now we can do our next tracks, Kirk. Okay, my next track sort of fits in with what we were talking about. It's a recording by Philip Glass. Just before I left the United States, I was fortunate to be able to see Einstein on the beach at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in its revival in 1984. For many years, the only recordings available were the original 76 recording, which was relatively shortened, and then a later Sony recording. And then in 2012... Philip Glass's record label, which we discussed earlier, Orange Mountain Music, released a CD and DVD set containing a 77-minute CD of highlights of the work. You know how they do it in opera highlights? They do little bits and pieces. And it had a documentary on a DVD about the production. At the same time, the iTunes store released a 3-hour and 37-minute complete recording of the 1984 production. It's only available on the iTunes store. And it is a fascinating piece of music. I understand why people don't like Philip Glass, and I understand why people do. There was something uh, amazing sitting there. I I think it was five hours long. And it's the only time I've been into a concert, and you were expressly told that feel free to go in and out of the concert hall during the performance, because you're not going to sit there for five hours without having to hit the toilet at some point. 
there's something about the, that music, the length of this over five hours, that was just mesmerizing. I had grown up with the three LP version, which was just a couple hours, and it only just gave tastes of it. And here you can hear the entire thing. So I'll link in the show notes to this on the iTunes store and on Apple Music. Doug, what have you got? I got me a Led Zeppelin record. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Led Zeppelin. I never was. I splurged one time to buy Led Zeppelin 4 because everybody was asking me if I already owned it. So I figured it might be a might be a good value, but I never really thought so. It's got a couple of good songs on it and Stairway to Heaven, but I've never liked Stairway to Heaven either. Anyway, until I got into radio, I really didn't appreciate what people liked about Led Zeppelin. I just thought they were, you know, kind of over the top. But I began to notice as I began working with the songs that there was one album that... Um, that had all the stuff on it that I liked, and that's Physical Graffiti. It's a double album, came out in 1975. Some of it is taken from stuff they didn't use on their earlier albums. But uh, you can tell what the new stuff is. They had been, I guess, off the road and hadn't been recording for about two years. Their bass player, keyboard player, John Paul Jones, had taken a year off. So when they got back together again, they were ready to roll. And uh, I think that explains why some of the songs at the very beginning are great. But... I don't think there's a bad song on this record. And as I said, it's the it's really the only Led Zeppelin album I like. There just isn't anyone that is as consistent uh, as this one is and, and is so Led Zeppelin-y. So, I mean, not for nothing, but that's it. Led Zeppelin, Physical Graffiti is my next track. This was episode number 194 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.